0: This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I have a bit of a cold, but I am pleased to be joined by Michael Hanchard to discuss his new book, The Spectre of Race How Discrimination Haunts Western Democracy. This book was recently published by Princeton University Press. This is a rich and complex study of the question of discrimination in general and race specifically within the field of comparative politics while also exploring the connection between citizenship and slavery. But slavery broadly understood, not just the United States experience with enslaved persons and the institution of slavery. But I'll ask Michael to tell us a bit about all of these ideas and considerations as we discuss the specter of race. First, I would like to welcome Michael to the New Books and Political Science podcast and to ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project. Hello, Michael. Hello, Dr. Gorn. I appreciate the opportunity. Please do tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to this project.
1: I'm uh, trained as a political scientist and a student of comparative politics. I'm currently the chair of the Africana Studies Department at the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, I've taught for years a course on qualitative methods. And in doing some research and preparation for the course, um, I came across an article that was published in 1971 by a very well-known comparatorist, R. Leiphardt. And he cited um, a series of lectures that I'd never seen before um, by an Edward Augustus Freeman uh, in 1873. And the title of the lectures were Comparative Politics. I was very intrigued because I'd never in my course of either preparing courses or even as a grad student, uh, saw the citation much less had a discussion with another comparatist about uh, Edward Augustus Freeman's formulations. And it became clear to me the longer I spoke, uh, the more I spoke with a variety of different students of comparative politics, it was clear that most the overwhelming majority of people I spoke to had not heard of uh, Freeman. Um, What I found uh, was a revelation, in fact, in the series of lectures he'd given. from what I can gather, this would seem to be the first systematic account or treatment of the comparative analysis of political institutions as a, as a science. Um, and the purpose of the creation of this scientific method, according to Freeman, was to prove that uh, across human history, what he called Euro-Aryans were the people and civilization uh, best equipped to sustain a politics of state. They were were state makers par uh, excellence. And he began to, as he developed the argument throughout the text, he was clearly making an argument about the nexus or the relationship between race, the idea of race and uh, and political community. And I then began to think about uh, writing a book that would in some ways put uh, Edward, uh, Augustus Freeman's uh, writings and his legacy in conversation with other periods in the discipline or the field, I should say, of uh, of comparative of comparative politics because no one has written, uh, to my knowledge, about Edward Augustus Freeman's uh, impact upon the field
0: or the discipline. And so in the book, you bring together a number of threads that you note are not often considered together, as you also just noted, specifically this question of the theoretical underpinning of slavery, which is an entire chapter of the book, racial and ethno-national subordination, and the question of democracy and comparative analysis. Can you unpack these parts of the variegated threads that you braid together in your work and explain perhaps why they have not been previously studied in the way that you have pulled them together?
1: Sure. Um, The argument I put forth in the specter of race Uh, will seem to many uh, counterintuitive, if not outright wrong, um, because I do not juxtapose uh, the practice of democracy against other forms of uh, rule, and specifically uh, uh, societies and political communities that produce uh, obvious inequalities between people, disparities uh, in uh, education, uh, in uh, employment, Um, that are often attributed to distinctions among them, uh, gender, ethno-national distinction, religious, or presumably uh, racial uh, distinction. And this was something that uh, led me to further explore not just uh, these writings of Freemans, but other writings and his impact actually on uh, on political political scientists. Um, So in terms of the question of slavery, um, I think it's important to first mention that uh, actually uh, uh, Athenians and the city-states of uh, Greece did not invent uh, slavery. Um, they certainly did not invent ra- racial slavery, per se. but slavery became a clear means to provide the material largesse that would enable uh, Athenian citizens to participate in the polity. So here we have, in some sense, this relationship between the unrenumerated labor of a certain portion of the population um, and another portion of the population receiving the benefits of that uh, labor. So in this sense, we can think about citizenship, not just in Athenian context, but other contexts, as not simply a, a, a benefit or right, but also as a, a privilege, that the purpose of citizenship um, in some sense is to not only provide a set of rights, um, but also in some sense distinguish the practice of those rights within a political community uh, from other political communities and also from other societies. So what we see uh, in the Athenian context, particularly by 451 uh, BC, is that what becomes clear is that uh, there's a discrepancy or disparity between the people who are members of the polity—that is to say, these those people who are invested with citizenship—and those people who are not—and that would include uh, foreigners, uh, that would include uh, uh, women, and certainly would include, uh, and certainly would include slaves. And that distinction between society and polity had been uh, has been carried over and recurrent uh, in what we would call the, the era of modern politics. That is to say, the politics of A politics of state. Um, The earliest democracies subsequent to Athens um, were also uh, polities and societies that relied on either slavery or remunerated labor. Um, Racial slavery comes uh, later when we think about the uh, transatlantic uh, slave trade in some sense coinciding in part with uh, scientific racism, being preceded by ecclesiastic uh, racism, that is to say, justifications for the enslavement and bondage of certain peoples and not and not others. That this became a, a way to justify uh, the enslavement of certain populations and not others. In this case, this would be African descent. And
0: and so, in that context, um, in the book, you specifically explore three Western democracies. France, Britain, and the United States. And, and you note that these three contemporary democracies construct institutions that come out of embedded discrimination. And you note that those embedded discriminations are of a variety of kinds and that the institutions continue to be impacted by these constructed differentiations. Can you speak to the reason why these three nations in particular find themselves in this predicament? Are there other countries that have avoided this fate in some way?
1: Right, no, this is a great question. Um, well, first of all, uh, the relationship between democracy, the practice of democracy and slavery needs to be context, um, I've chosen because not because they're the only countries that have uh, un- had or undergone, uh, undergone this predicament, but they represent the, at least by the sort of uh, the, the Western narrative, the longest standing democracies uh, in the world. Um, the French Revolution in many ways um, uh, can be seen slightly differently from the American Revolution in, in some sense, but neither the French Revolution nor the uh, U.S. Revolution uh resolve the issue of slavery. That is to say that with the creation of nation statehood, uh, the slavery question was left unresolved. Um, In the case of France, this was a question that really, uh, in some ways, helped congeal the tension between the right and the left wing of the uh, revolution. Um, uh, Danton, among others, posed the question, well, if we declare um, and we've crafted a document um, that grants uh, you know, rights to uh, man and citizen, shouldn't that include uh, slaves? This pattern would be followed, um, this pattern was followed uh, in uh, the late 19th century and early 20th century um, in the Haitian Revolution. In many ways we can think about the Haitian Revolution as the extension of the Enlightenment ideals embedded in the French Revolution and uh, subsequently in the anti-colonial revolutions in Latin America, the first two decades of the 19th century, where I believe it was 21 out of 23 uh, uh, Spanish uh, colonies had become independent nation states. None of these independent nation, newly independent nation states uh, resolved the question of slavery. That is the institution of slavery. That is to say, uh, they maintained the institution of slavery uh, throughout the independence period, even though in many instances, particularly around Colombia uh, and Cuba and elsewhere, uh, slaves were often enlisted uh, to fight in anti-colonial armies for independence. They're often uh, enlisted in the hope that their participation and loyalty to the new nation would result in their uh, unqualified freedoms. And in most cases, it, it did not. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the distinctions, I think, again, goes back to this question of uh, society and polity is whether in a particular society, can every member of society, or at least most members of society, be uh, invested with the franchise and with voting and citizenship uh, rights? So this tension uh, between who has privileged with the rights and benefits of citizenship, and who are not, we can find in a range of different uh, social movements, particularly over the course of the 20th century, whether we're talking about the U.S. Civil Rights Movement, whether we're talking about the suffragist or, or women's movement, the international women's movement, um, is a question of rights for a specific set of populations.
0: And And so in that context, in this sort of issue of embedded discrimination, you talk about the fact that race itself is also an organizing principle for government and for some of the popular movements. How does this connect with the Athenian experience that you draw from in an understanding of sort of Western slavery?
1: I guess, first of all, um, as a comparativist, I tend to uh, highlight Um, the importance of institutions. Um, And institutions are critical uh, in the development of not only racial hierarchies and ideologies, but also in the rule of law designed to separate people, to keep people at a certain uh, status, uh, and in some sense provide status protections uh, for those who are members of a dominant uh, group. So we can think, for example, in the case of the United States, Certainly Jim Crow is one example. Uh, the 1790 uh, nationalization law, um, which required that um, uh, citizenship uh, could be granted, the naturalization could be granted to uh, white men who are not uh, enslaved, in some sense uh, crystallizes this dynamic because it renders politically salient one segment of the population at the expense of other populations uh, within the society, um, thereby giving that group a sense of privileges that other members of the society do not have. Those excluded members of society uh, eventually spend time organizing and mobilizing to try to either attain the same sets of rights or related sets of rights uh, for themselves. So in many ways, when we think about a variety of different slavery votes, whether in uh, classical Athens, uh, whether in the United States or other parts of the new world, or if we think about anti-colonial struggles, uh, for example, the relationship between Algeria and France, um, which led to the Algerian uh, war for uh, independence. Um, In each case, you had governments that set up differential uh, citizenship regimes uh, specifically for those populations. Um, Now, part of what the book does it focuses on the what I consider to be the internal threats to uh, democratic practices as as usually constituted. That is to say, um, that uh, democracies can be considered as some combination of uh, egalitarian or uh, deliberation combined with action based upon that deliberation. Under those circumstances, then uh, it doesn't necessarily uh, mean that that uh, form of deliberation and action will lead to democratic outcomes for all peoples, right? Um, so one of the questions the book poses um, is really, which were really central to think about this question or connection between what I call racial and ethno-national regimes um, is really a twofold question. Uh, who should labor and who should rule? Uh, followed by a more fundamental question, is democracy for whom? Does that answer the
0: question? Yeah, and it, and I mean, yeah, and and your book really dives into that that broad question from so many different perspectives, and I think it's really important to think about that. And I think you do a great job, sort of trying to pull some of these threads together in uh, in the comparative perspective, which is also what I want to ask you about. Um, you. In the book, you're making an effort to examine, quote, the continuities and discontinuities in race thinking among students of comparative politics. And you say that, you know, you talk about how this is a very important aspect of understanding the three stages of the development of the field of comparative politics. Can you explain what students of comparative politics and everybody else who studies politics? should understand not only from examining contemporary comparative politics, but also from the periods that precede our current moment. Okay,
1: Um, so I guess first we can think about, particularly in a contemporary moment, um, there are many uh, pundits and uh, scholars, but also uh, everyday citizens who treat the current moment in the United States of heightened xenophobia, of uh, an uh, uber-nationalism, or of fascistic tendencies uh, in uh, an uncivil discourse is something new or peculiar to US democracy. Um, we go back, for example, to World War II. Um, and we can actually go further back, but just to give you an example, uh, Vinice, uh, the Nisei, the American born US born Japanese citizens who were interned uh, in various camps um, because they were considered threats to uh, national security, give you an example of the ways in which nation states uh, privilege certain populations over others. Uh, The other continuity between the Athenian uh, moment and moments like this is that moments of perceived political crisis, that is to say when a society or a state feels threatened, either externally or internally, is when we often see the activation of these kinds of practices uh, designed to isolate further mon, mon, minoritize and subjugate certain populations and not uh, and not others. Um, the other issue to think about is, the way I think about particularly the part of the book where I explore E.A. Freeman as a sort of neglected le- legacy within comparative politics is uh, for many years, I mean, certainly throughout my career as a comparativist. I've heard and talking to colleagues uh, from students I've trained and submitted articles to journals uh, to be told that uh, the study of race has nothing to do with the study of comparative politics and that uh, uh, articles or or projects which focus on race and comparative perspective are usually better off uh, to be found or to be uh, submitted to journals on racial and ethnic studies. So what Freeman provides, in some sense, is a counterpoint to suggest, No, in fact, uh, you know, you could one could argue that the history of the development of a scientific discipline, however, and and this I'm using scientific in this sense uh, in quotes because Freeman basically already had his answer to a loaded uh, question. But certainly, we can't deny the centrality of racial hierarchy uh, in. Uh, his determination of who would be best suited for uh, political rule. I mean, he had a hierarchy uh, which placed uh, Afro-descendant people, in, which in one of his uh, writings his travelogues, because for a while uh, he was he had, a, he had a brief career in the United States as a public intellectual. And um, these uh, entries are collected uh, in, a, in a volume called Impressions, of the united states um, he makes derogatory comments about african americans uh about uh, jews about uh, the irish about a range of different uh the range of different people and uh what i came to find out in the process of doing this research is that uh woodrow wilson who took his phd of johns hopkins uh, and worked uh, in Herbert Baxter Adams' uh, seminar of uh, historical uh, and political science, was influenced by Freeman's uh, beliefs. Uh, and in fact, in uh, his book, uh, The State, and actually in an earlier version of the book, The Modern Democratic State, um, Wilson uh, made a pronouncement that has eerily uh, sort of echoes of Freeman's uh, pronouncements where he claims that uh, racial homogeneity is the first prerequisite for society that would be democratic, right? So in many ways, um, it was suggesting that the, that homogeneity, societal and population homogeneity would produce political stability, political uniformity, and would lead to uh, de- democracy, right? So for Freeman, for example, Uh, The the United States was peculiar, not because of its experiment with democracy, um, as the Tocqueville Tocqueville would have us believe, but the fact that allowed so many different uh, so-called or presumed races of people who inhabited the United States to actually become members of the United States political community. And this was, for him, a very dangerous uh, experiment.
0: And so with regard to the the sort of understanding of the birth, I guess, of comparative politics as a discipline, where, as you know, there's a lot of sort of um, privileging or, you know, expounding on the merits of democracy. Right.
1: It, that's
0: right. It, it's also that democracy itself is um in In that context, by these thinkers was posited to be one that that was best when it was homogeneous, or at least the the polity as you note, is homogeneous as opposed to the society in the Athenian construction
1: right. Well, in the book, I, I I mention and describe three different moments or iterations of comparative politics.
0: That was my next the question. First, can can you right, tell uh, us about that?
1: Yes, yes, I certainly can. Um, and that first iteration is the neglected uh, iteration of Edward Augustus Freeman. Um, the second iteration uh, begins with the uh, SSRC's uh, sponsored Politics in the Developing Areas uh, project. Um, which involved not just political scientists, but anthropologists, um, and many of whom were studying what came to be known as the third world or developed or under, underdeveloping areas of the world and a prospect for democracies in these parts of the world. Um, much of this scholarship focused with uh, a not so, um, a sort of, a, a partially explicit um, declaration that in order for Uh, Say, for example, um, you know, a society like Ghana or uh, the the, the second uh, uh, colony, uh, Western colony uh, on the continent to achieve political uh, independence. The first was Sudan that they had to, in some sense, guard against and rid themselves of both tribalism as well as uh, follow a West-centric model. Of, uh, of, of political of, of politics, which could in fact lead to uh, democracy. The irony in many of the of, of many of the scholars in the comparative politics politics developing areas of cohort is that they were trying to develop a new vocabulary or language to think about comparing uh, political institutions across time and space. Gabriel Aronin, for example, well understood that there were certain inherent biases in the ways in which uh, certain parts of the world were analyzed, which were too uh, filled with um, basically bigoted opinions or uh, prior judgments or prejudices, which uh, limited the ability of analysts to actually understand and find parallels between political institutions, uh, say for example, in Madras state in India or in uh, Accra, uh, Ghana, for that, uh, for that matter. So in some sense, they sought to, in some sense, make the, the practice of uh, the science of comparative politics uh, more scientific and more systematic, if you will, so that uh, in many ways, it kind of predated or set up for a more positivist and post-behavioral um, movement within the discipline to basically uh, believe that methods could be transported from one place to another, and uh, local context in many ways would be considered uh, secondary. So these, and then by the time we get to the era of uh, of perestroika, um, many ways perestroika um, was anticipated by the politics of the developing areas uh, movement um, but it was more targeted at the profession um, itself, and the increasingly positivist uh, shift within the profession of political science, more generally, and it's certainly within comparative and IR in in particular. And this was argued in part by the collapse of the Soviet Union, and not just the Soviet Union, but the dream and project of the Soviet uh, of the so of the Soviet bloc, right? Um, so. Times of, and, and on the practical side, on the practical side, um, times of crisis, as in the case with uh, ancient Athens, uh, classical Athens, Athenian citizens and elites were concerned about being possibly overrun in the Persian war. Uh, They're also concerned about the possibility that citizens who have become indebted to foreigners could be converted into slaves. And so the, myth, the mythological narrative of citizens being descendants of those who sprang uh, from the earth uh, became a way to provide a protection, right, against uh, Athenian c- citizenry from uh, enslavement. Um, if we think about the autophony myth of classical Athens, it bears a lot of striking parallels between the racial and ethno-national chauvinisms of modern politics and the ways in which laws get cra- crafted in response to perceived crises in order to protect a certain population, to privilege a certain population, to not other populations.
0: So, I mean, you, you are doing an amazing, amazing work in this book because you are pulling together... You know sort of about five different questions um and 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 trying to explore you know as you say, the specter of race, but it's not just about race it's also when slavery becomes racialized, as you note um, but you conclude with this question about cultural pluralism and democracy and whether the prospect for democracy particularly our modern democracies, can exist and build polities, norms, and societies that allow all members of a given society to participate equally, stripping away distinctions of gender, social class, religion, ethnicity, origin, and racial distinction. The history that you note of societies that make a promise of egalitarian ideals, but have social and political orders, that are built upon the dominance of particular ethno-national groups or races, have scrambled the mode of analysis and have also provided the problematic of balancing cultural difference in democracy. So I ask you, is there any hope?
1: Right, okay. So let's deal with the question of hope first, and then I can give you um, some examples. Um, I'm actually less... Uh, energized by questions of uh, hope. I'm more energized by questions of will. Do societies and states have enough political will or communal will to address the roots of xenophobia and of racism and sexism in their societies? Um, I would, I don't want to leave the impression that I think that um, distinctions of gender, social class, religion, ethnicity, and racial distinction can be stripped away. What I'm trying to suggest is that um, in a more ideal society uh, that is a democratic and both plural, that those distinctions aren't red- rendered uh, with political value. That is to say, um, to render one uh, form of identification as being more politically salient, more politically important uh, than others. That's when you get the development of racial regimes and national regimes, in part because these regimes are not static. So when we think about the United States, for example, um, one of the issues that became clear um, after uh, the Civil War is that, you know, with the rise uh, in certain uh, areas of the country in status of freed persons who were literate, um, who uh, in some, you know, isolated cases could generate wealth. Um Uh, and actually have a say in the polity, this was seen as very threatening, uh, particularly in the South, to an idea about white supremacy and white rule, right? Um, Right. And so when we think, not just in these contexts, I can give you examples from other parts of the world, if we think about the current crisis of of the Rohingya in Myanmar, right? They're represented as an outside foreign population. that somehow tra- tra- uh, trouble the integrity of the country, and there need to be either uh, uh, legal safeguards or extra juridical uh, means to repress their presence in that in that society. So and that, in some sense, is uh, res- a response to the question, what do you do with people considered unfamiliar or foreign in their midst? And this in many ways is an old question that goes back, in fact, to the expulsion of Moors and Jews um, from Spain. Can these people be assimilated into the society and subsequently the, po- the polity? Should they be repressed, marginalized, and minoritized? Or should we take the genocidal route? Right. So we've seen, whether we're talking about Nazi Germany, uh, Myanmar, we're talking about um, responses um, by white nationalist groups, uh, not just in the United States, but certainly currently in the EU, uh, we see different responses to that question on um, um, basically all three of the responses um, above. Um, so finally, if we think about the connections in the last part of the book um, is an epilogue which uh, entitled uh, "From Athens to Charlottesville." the language of the white nationalists in Charlottesville of blood and soil uh, Jews uh, will not uh, replace us these are all naturalizing metaphors to suggest that these people um, the so-called Aryans were the first people or the people first empowered to rule in the uh, uh, in the in the nation state called the United States and one of its most prominent, exponents in the days immediately after Charlottesville uh, was someone who, like many of his other uh, colleagues in his cohort argued that the United States should be uh, and was in some sense designed to be uh, an ethno state. And in some respects, if we think about the constitution and its amendments, they're not they're not entirely wrong. The question is what would it look like now to create an ethno state? It would essentially involve, the process of either marginalization, liquidation, and at least in their case, the argument is that there could no there could be no prospect for assimilation um, because mixing so many different peoples in a polity is like mixing oil uh, and, uh, and and vinegar. Um, and in this sense, I see both the U.S. civil rights movement um, as an incomplete project. I see many uh, different movements around the world um, as also incomplete projects. And it's important to remember that um, some of the most powerful movements, social movements and political movements of the 20th century have been identitarian. They've been based on a response to some form of original or generating uh, exclusion of a certain group, which
0: in turn responds by trying to energize and
1: mobilize members of that group make political
0: claims in this way just one one last question about the book how does race connect to nationalism in this regard
1: well as i just mentioned and certainly in certain cases there's a belief um that somehow uh race signifies a certain form of purity uh, and a push to homogeneity um that occludes and in some sense ignores the reality that even before what came to be known as identity politics and multiculturalism, that most national societies we can think of across the world were already multicultural societies. If you think about, um, you know, with the collapse of the Habsburg Empire, the range of different nationalities that came to constitute what came to be known as the non-historical nations by the moment of decolonization roughly between 1945, and 1970. Most of these uh, former colonies turned independent nation states were also plural societies. So plurality has been with us within the nation state system for a long time. Um, Many of the current problems of, uh, particularly within the EU, and discussions about immigration, I would argue, and I argue in the book, are really not questions or arguments about immigration. It's really about who shall we? Uh, who shall we let into our country? And by what criteria do we exclude and include people? And if we just think about the difference between the treatment, say for example, of migrants or people coming in from the north of the border, northern border of the United States to the southern and southwestern border of the United States, um, it's hard not to come to the conclusion that the different sort of governmental logics informing the, the border protections. At both of these places are intrinsically racialized and heightened in the yeah, world. I mean
0: your book is really fascinating for bringing all of these ideas together, particularly with the grounding in an understanding from Athens of like who was a citizen and who was in the society but not a citizen, um, which I, I learned a lot of, from that discussion in particular. Um, so I was wondering, Michael. What are you working on now?
1: Well, um, I, uh, let's say I'm working on a book in some ways, which is uh, uh, from surplus material from this book. Um, and it's about the relationship between uh, fascism and racial rule. There's been a lot of uh, very interesting scholarship over the past few years that looks at uh, some of the colonial roots or origins of fascist violence, whether we're talking about Germany whether talking about Portugal or Italy, um, and that the political imaginations and course of imaginations of Mussolini, uh, and uh, Hitler, and Salazar were informed by their uh, active private activities in the colonies. And so, one of the parts I want to argue in this book is that what, many of the discussions today about of uh, contemporary fascism, um, there's often a way of lumping together fascism with authoritarianism, with a range of other things, but few commentators actually look at the relationship between fascism and, uh, and racial rule. And I think what they'll find and what I hope to uh, render visible are the ways in which uh, racial rule provided part of this sort of political language and grammar for fascist governments, and here I'm talking about fascist governments, not just uh, fascist, uh, fascistic movements.
0: Okay, so the actual ruling of a fascist government, as opposed to movements that might move in that direction.
1: The need to restore order. We need to restore the, the primacy or the sort of integrity of the of the citizen, which is uh, racialized. The use of imperial colonial expansion um, to to prove the vitality of uh, of the nation um, after a period of uh, decline, certainly in the German case and in the Portuguese case, often through the uh, occupation and colonization of sub- subjected peoples uh, in both instances uh, in Africa. Um, this is in some sense part of the legacy. Um, and we even think about, for example, how pal- paramilitary movements in the United States, which in many of these cases have as their target, um, minoritized populations um, and also progressive populations who are seen as a threat to their dream of an ethno state.
0: So when you finish this next book, will you come back on the New Books in Political Science podcast and discuss it with me?
1: Oh, I would be more than happy to. I'm quite grateful for this initial opportunity And I hope I have more opportunities to talk to you and
0: your audience. I I love that. So now's a chance if you have your favorite brick and mortar store or not. Um, Where can a listener buy your book, The Specter of Race, How Discrimination Haunts Western Democracy, published by Princeton University Press? Where can somebody pick up a copy of this book?
1: Well, thanks for the uh, advertisement and support. Um, well, the, mo- the closest one to me at the University of Pennsylvania is uh, the Penn Bookstore is doing, uh, 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 so, uh, it's highlighting my book, and I'm going to do a presentation uh, from parts of the book on October 30th of, uh, of this month.
0: So, listeners, if you're, in, if you're in Philadelphia, you should go to the Penn Bookstore and hear Michael Hanchard, right?
1: But it's available at, at most major bookstores. Uh, in the country, it should be at least, and certainly uh, uh, academic-oriented bookstore.
0: Okay. Thank you, Michael Hansard, for joining me today. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Well, thanks so much for great questions. I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you.